Hello and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. Bit of an interesting episode this month where I essentially relinquish my duties with Avery Hill Publishing uh, and hand over, among other, other things, the hosting duties uh, for this podcast. Um, first up, my reasons for relinquishing my duties from Avery Hill uh, are essentially based around some uh, awful medical news that I received recently where I've uh, found out I've got uh, an inoperable brain tumour and uh, approximately 18 months left to live. Uh, so with that in mind, I sort of spoke to the rest of the gang at Avril and said, I think it's probably best if I sort of hand things over now while I'm still in a position to and do the most orderly transition of power and responsibility as is possible. Um, with that in mind, let's introduce the rest of the Avery Hill gang. So we've got Ricky Miller. Hello. Dave White. Hello. And Katrina Chapman. Hello. So as I say, uh, from, I guess, you know, the next episode on, whenever that ends up coming out, uh, it won't be me hosting the show. Uh, Ricky, is it going to be you or are you going to share it amongst you or what's the what's the plan? Um, I, I guess we've yet to decide exactly how it would work. I, I was kind of thinking about it and trying to decide. I just feel like it would be weird for me to kind of interview creators that I've edited the books on, mainly <laughs> because they see me as like a really powerful authority figure. So <laughs> like, like, a fa really... like a father in many ways. Well, a father, <laughs> a boss. A mentor. Yes. An idol, perhaps. Yeah, um, yeah. In some cases. Um, and I just feel like they'd be too intimidated to have a proper conversation. <laughs> or at least say what they really think, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess uh, one of my sort of go-to questions was always to talk about the process of working with yourself and Dave in terms of editorial oversight and process and working out how the book was going to operate. Uh, and they were always very nice and uh, positive. Uh, whereas, uh, as you say, if you're asking them suddenly, you know, it's uh, it's a bit too too close to the fire, isn't it? Yeah, there, there's a degree of pressure in on their answer, I, I guess. In, in that, in on, that on, on, on both sides, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it could end and, terribly. And, and if we, I, I don't consider maybe Dave could interview mine, I could interview his, but I feel like we both just spend the whole time just trying to stitch you one up a little bit. <laughs> just no one wants lead, leading them in directions to uh to, to slag us off a bit. So, and we might, we might be able to squeeze one or two episodes out of that, but I think that formula will get pretty boring <laughs> after a while <laughs> for everyone, everyone concerned. So, um, yeah. How many times do you want to make a creator of, uh, burst into tears? Isn't it? Like five or six, yeah. please. Five or six times. <laughs> we'll go nuclear pretty quickly, I think. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, Steve, I mean, your, your lawyers are being quite full on about the non-compete stuff uh, and the branding and the trademarks. <laughs> So, I mean, if you could, uh, in, in, in the negotiations to release you from your contract, so if you could ask them to ease up a little bit on that, that'd be, 
that'd be excellent. Sure, sure. I'll either ask them to do that or just double down on just, everything just go, they've yeah, done so just, far. Just absolutely ring them completely out. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just go, yeah. Rinse them, lads. Right. Rinse them. They're weak. They're weak. They haven't got a clue. Take them out. I'd be careful about that, though, Steve, because you might end up owning the company, and then I, I would not recommend that. That could backfire very badly on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my um attempts to relinquish my duty suddenly turn into me taking on all the duties. This is uh <laughs> I've I've seen this Bill Murray film. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean I guess just kind of watch this space while we try and decide what to do. I mean the, the podcast didn't exist before you, so uh, well me, Dave, and originally Michael, who used to be our partner in the company. Um, we, we, we used to record a podcast a long time ago, but yeah, that, that very much fizzled out. So I, I, I think it's fair to say there were extremely valid reasons why we stopped doing that. Um, <laughs> the quality of the output being, being the main one. So, uh, and Steve, without, you know, it's a tough act to follow, right? I'm, I'm not quite sure how we follow it up. So, um, yeah, leave, leave it with us whilst we ever whilst we ever think about that. I suppose also like that was a very different format to what I ended up doing, which was essentially conversations with creators about their specific uh, projects. Just to throw in uh, a suggestion, one of the things that I did uh, occasionally was essentially pair off creators to talk about each other's projects uh, and sort of get similar sorts of insight but also as well you know the nice thing there is of course where you've got two creators talking to each other they're a little more aware of the craft than I am so they can ask uh, better questions in a lot of uh, situations than I ever did so um, that could be something to consider but then you're also you're also reliant on uh, creators being comfortable doing podcasts generally and being happy to uh, sort of not interrogate, but uh, converse with one another about their particular projects. Yeah, and to get one of them to remember to press a record button, which <laughs> um, for most artists I know is, uh, that's going to be beyond most of them. So. <laughs> it's beyond me more than once as well. So. <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, it you that we had to really record the whole thing once, Steve? Yeah, me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, let's not, let's not burnish my legacy uh, beyond recognition. <laughs> was that a Christmas one or was it just a general? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dave uh, jumping in there to say, yeah, yeah, it was, as if to say, you know, I had drinks planned that night, but uh, they went out the window. <laughs> and then next thing you know, no one can do any drinks because of COVID. So thanks for that, Steve. <laughs> never getting those drinks back <laughs> I, I think it was your subtle way to tell us it was just appalling content Steve and, um, <laughs> and just, just you had, gave you absolutely nothing to work with but then if uh, that was the case I'd have done it more than once surely <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I remember we did the same thing when we were yeah recording the early version of the podcast as well we have one and that, 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 that podcast very much depended on being off the cuff. So doing that a second time, that, that was painful. <laughs> more, more painful. Yeah, much more painful. Yeah, there's something particularly challenging about being 
spontaneous to order, isn't there? <laughs> so I think one of the uh, sort of ideas we had uh, for this episode uh, was for me to talk about highlights of my time uh, with Avery Hill. Yeah, yeah, there's that. And also, I, I was kind of keen to get you to um, talk about your history in comics, really, like how you, I almost, I didn't want to interview you as, as such, but um, certainly like get like a bit of an insight into all the questions that you ask creators, really, because um, you, you've been in comics as long as, or longer than any of us, really, in one form or another. <laughs> um, so, yeah, maybe you could give us a bit of a background on what what was the first comics you started reading? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, so I was, I've been reading comics as long as I've been able to read. My mum was always very good in terms of, she was never sort of like, oh, comics are terrible, you shouldn't read comics. She was always, if you're reading, I'm not going to quibble about what you're reading. And I would, I'd read everything and anything. I'd read, you know, prose books and uh, informational books. I'd, I'd read anything that was put in front of me, you know. Um, and, and that included when it came to comics, uh, you know, I grew up in the 80s and it was still a time when you had that sort of firm idea of, of boys comics and, and girls comics in, in the UK comic scene. So I would read things like uh, Buster, which was a UK humor comic with the premise originally that Buster, the title character, was the son of Andy Cap. Uh, oh, so wow. he wore a cap and uh, would get into various uh, scrapes. I think they sort of dropped that conceit as it went along and you saw his parents and they weren't uh, Flo and Andy from the Andy Cap. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Apparently, that's, that's why I always heard that it was supposed to be young or Andy Cap Jr. Um, but then, as I say, they sort of grew it uh, beyond that. And you know, Buster sort of took that inevitable arc of so many uh, UK kids comics where uh, across the 80s, he was basically a sort of Dennis the Menace style scallywag who would uh, annoy teachers and parents and other authority figures and end up getting uh, spanked with a slipper a lot of the time. Uh, and that sort of, you know, went out of vogue as uh, corporal punishment was largely uh, criminalised across the 80s. And then into the 90s, you sort of got the bits where, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm sort of out of the Buster readings here at this point, but you sort of like, I'd sort of look on in horror as I sort of scanned the, the shelves in the newsagent and see uh, Buster. You know, initially he's like rocking a Walkman, with uh, some uh, orange sponge headphones, mm -hmm. that's all right. But then before you know it, it's sort of skateboards and he's got his cap at a funny angle and it all just went a bit sort of like, you know, uh, trendy buster. Um, and eventually the comic was sort of, not put out of its misery because I'm sure there were still kids enjoying it, it just wasn't obviously my thing and it shouldn't have been my thing because I would have been sort of 15 <laughs> when it uh, was stopped. Um, but yeah, that was a huge sort of, uh, a huge uh, read for me as a, as a kid. And obviously alongside that, then you had 
uh, as I say, in terms of what they would have bracketed as boys comics at the time, you had uh, Battle and other mm -hmm. sort of uh, war comics. Um, and then Battle, Battle eventually ended up combining and becoming a vehicle for the Action Force toy range, which was essentially the European UK version of G.I. Joe, but would have, uh, I always remember one of my favourite Action Force comics um, was basically them, it was basically uh, the Action Force team going to the local supermarket but in like uh, a military jeep with like a cannon fixed to the back. Uh, and on the way, they ended up going through some sort of town and the town bank had been taken over by Cobra, which were the enemies of Action Force. Um, it was in like Guildford or something. Yeah, so I was, was, was going to say Cobra, like the global, yeah, uh, you know, kind of criminal network. And you know, in in the in the GI Joe comics, they would be in uh, Virginia or Los Angeles, like glamorous places whose names were evocative. Um, and obviously, you know, the UK creators were just having a great laugh, sort of going, yeah, but imagine if they took over a bank in Guildford and uh, Action Force had to go along in their, uh, you know, all-terrain vehicle with a cannon on the back to uh, stop them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, uh, so eventually you had another tradition in British comics at the time was uh, it was Hatch, Match and Dispatch. So you would, they would create comics. Then if the title's sales slowed down, they would combine it with another comic. So you'd have Buster, and then they'd sort of go, oh, Jackpot isn't selling as well as it, it was. So it would become, they were like, great news for readers inside. And it'd be like, from next week, you're going to get the best of Jackpot as well as all your Buster favourites. So what they'd do is they would import, like, the three most popular strips from Jackpot and uh, put those in Buster. And then uh, eventually, after about a month or so, from the masthead, Jack, any mention of Jackpot would disappear and just become Buster again, but it was Buster with a couple of characters that weren't in it six months ago. Um, and that would happen uh, quite often. And Buster was one of the last sort of surviving UK comics. So I think over its uh, run, it would have absorbed between 25 and 30 other titles. Um, and right, they all right. would have had their time sharing the master Buster and Wizard and Chips and Buster and Core and Whoopi and Shiver and Shake. Um, but, but by the end, it was uh, just Buster. I think my favourite example, I sort of traced it before, where the Eagle ended up absorbing a lot of uh, other titles and then had a relaunch. And then eventually that Eagle comic was absorbed into another comic. I can't remember which one it was, but it was a comic that had already absorbed the Eagle like 10 years before. So <laughs> it was essentially their second absorption uh, by another title, uh, which is, I think, when you sort of know that things aren't going well uh, for that particular comic. So I would read a lot of, uh, I would read Battle, Battle Action Force, um, the Eagle, I would have a look at from time to time. 2000 AD I would pick up occasionally but I was never sort of a regular um, reader but also I think quite importantly um, I would happily uh, my sister would buy comics as well and was never into them as much as me but would still pick up you know Bunty and, and Judy and, and whatnot um, and I would happily 
uh, having read all my comics, just read hers uh, as well, and never sort of had any qualms about it. But as I say, there was sort of, you know, this idea of like boys' comics and girls' comics. But for me, it was just like, here's some more comics uh, to read. And, you know, since then, I've sort of discovered that um, for a lot of those girls' comics were being put together by obviously the same creators as the boys' comics. But um, Pat Mills always tells a great story where he would point out that the girls were a lot more demanding in terms of story than the boys. He was like, you know, with the boys, you can kind of resolve a story just by throwing a grenade at a tank and the tank <laughs> blows up and the, the, the threat of the tank is over and the story is finished and the boys sort of go away again. Great story. Um, but with the girls' story, they would have to have it would need to be much more substantial. There'd have to be some sort of emotional heft to it. And there would have to be some sort of narrative uh, heft to it as well. So you'd have to have some sort of more substantial resolution to the story than just blowing something up. Um, and I don't remember sort of appreciating those stories in that level, but I'm, I'm sort of glad that I did uh, read them uh, and enjoy them. And I'm sure it did sort of help me to become a more well-rounded uh, comics reader. And then I guess the sort of the, the inevitable transition into American comics came when I went to secondary school. Uh, I, my school was in Upper Norwood, so suddenly uh, Croydon uh, was a regular place where I'd, I'd meet up with friends at the weekend and I made, you know, a couple of friends in secondary school who read um, American comics and similarly I had a friend uh, in Camberwell uh, who my mate Dean introduced me to called Beck and he was you know a huge comics reader um, and would uh, basically he'd buy you know we'd end up between us buying pretty much every Marvel and DC comic every month just sort of swapping them over so we'd sort of read everything keep track of uh, was that from a, was that newsstand or was uh, did you have a comic shop you were going to at that point that, uh, these were newsstand initially but then like myself like me and Beck would go up to central London and then me and my mates from school would go into Croydon. So between us, we would go to uh, Phantom Zone in Croydon was a, a popular uh, spot. I mean, Sheraton Hughes in Croydon was a, a hotbed of uh, back issues uh, and uh, a really good resource. And then obviously in central London, you had uh, Forbidden Planet, uh, Gosh, uh, not Orbital, Comic Showcase a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, all the sort of, uh, I, I mean, reading about the, the shops in Central London now, I realised I didn't know half of them uh, in terms of uh, the sort of the, the, the places to go. It was just uh, the obvious ones. But there were enough around that you would get a good uh, sort of selection. And you had um, comic marks were going at the time and obviously still going now. And also a huge sort of thing at that time was uh, UCAC, UK Comic Art Conventions, which would take place around the Institute of Adult Education sort of, uh, and the, the hotel in, in Russell Square, where you would have dealer rooms, but you'd also have sort of panels and talks and uh, yeah, just really, really uh, good uh, places to, to visit and meet. You know, I, I'd sort of go, though UCAC was always with um, my mate uh, Beck, and then you had, I remember there was a, um, a 
big show up at Alexandra Palace where they brought Jim Lee over in like 1991, wow. 92. Yeah. So I've got my copy of X-Men number one uh, signed by Jim Lee. I don't have a certificate of authenticity, but like, you know, I watched him sign it. So I have no doubts in my mind <laughs> about the authenticity of that signature. Um, yeah, so those were all sort of huge. And then I guess about the age of sort of I don't know, 15, 16, I think, I think sort of partly, you know, around the time that sort of Batman was crippled and Superman was killed, I sort of not lost interest, but I sort of moved away from, from comics a little bit and certainly stopped collecting in the same intense way I did. But, you know, obviously at that point as well, you had, it was a time when Vertigo was starting to move into the mainstream a little bit. And, you know, by visiting shops, I was discovering things like uh, sort of Love and Rockets and Nexus, which were, you know, a bit more, um, I don't want to say sophisticated, because I do, I loved, uh, you know, superhero comics and I was reading stuff like uh, DP7 that was as sophisticated as anything else being put out at the time. Um, but um, yeah, I sort of moved away from comics a little bit and it felt like comics had moved away from me a little bit. And uh, I didn't really collect for a, a few, good few years yet, to, to be fair. Um, still had obviously tons of, of comics. Um, and uh, eventually when my parents moved over to Ireland, I had my comics in my sister and brother-in-law's shed and then they were moving over to Ireland um, and they basically had to clear out their sheds and I had no space whatsoever to store 12 boxes of comics um, so basically I hired a table at one of the marts in Russell Square and bought my comics down just spread them out across this table and I was just selling them for like a pound each uh, just to basically shift them and people just were absolutely swarming the table and uh, clean it out because I had, I knew I had stuff that was worth more than that there, um, but just for the sake of getting rid of it. And like, you know, I made, uh, I, don't know, I would have made about 300 quid, um, but obviously uh, sold things like uh, the first appearance of Gambit, which is now the only X-Men comic between uh, 200 and 300 that I don't own and cost <laughs> now, and I'm probably never going to buy it. <laughs> But like, you know, uh, I was sort of aware at the time that I was doing myself over, but it was just a practical thing to sort of clear the space more than anything. And as I say, comics weren't as important to me at that point. So I was like, oh, 300 quid, that's good. Yeah, um, I remember taking my back issue collection into the edge of forever to uh, sell it to them. After pro I'd probably bought all the comics from them and then give me like <laughs> five pounds for a, a hundred <laughs> comics. And me immediately spending most of that on the latest Doctor Who magazine with them. <laughs> I very much resent that. They could have just given me the magazine. They could have given me the magazine. No, that's 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 not the model. That's not the model. Um, I am um, similar similar thing. I mean, I've still got boxes in my mum's loft. Right. That I've, I popped up to uh, to because we, we, we got a clear. We, me and my sister got so much stuff in my mum's loft. And every now and again, she tries to um, motivate us to go up there and sort it out. And we go up and have a look, and it's a bit dirty, and it's a bit hot, so we come back down again. But I had a look at the uh, the boxes of comics, and I mean they're not they're not in the best state. But um, 
my mum's still in the mindset that they're worth a fortune. She's like, you know, <laughs> when you when you were collecting these in the eighties and nineties, you know, they were worth they were worth a lot of money. So why don't you go and sort them out? And I'm like, I, I don't think we're in that place anymore, mum. But you know, it's lovely to think that uh, you know there's a nest egg up there. Um, and and uh, I moved uh, more than a few years ago now, but um, uh, I've gone for a period of buying lots lots of you know, kind of Marvel and DC comics that uh, from the time that, you know, every time from every event and that kind of thing. Um, and obviously they, you know, just don't hold their value at all. And I just needed to get rid of some because I didn't want to move with them all. And um, it's actually quite hard to get rid of kind of more, or, or this is what I found, more recent, you know, kind of back issues. Uh, because if you take them into a shop, they want to have a look through and see what you've got and pick the good ones and, and leave leave the uh, perhaps not so desirable ones. So I just ended up giving them away to someone for a donation to charity, which is, you know, but I, I couldn't find anywhere to, um, to, I couldn't even give them to like hospitals or anything like that. They, they can't take them or um, any charities like that. So um, yeah, yeah, I should have hired a, hired a table and, and done them for a pound a go. I reckon I'd have made more money. Yeah, you can. I mean, there's still marks going on now. I don't know if yeah. now is probably the best time to do it with COVID, of course. But um, uh, Dave, I would say in terms of the uh, that loft up there, if you've got a first appearance of Gambit, I'll happily give you a five. I'll, I'll try. Do you know what? That's what I was just thinking. I reckon, I reckon it could be there. So I'll, I'll have a little look. And, and the other thing I'm now thinking is I should have, you know, we should have used it as an alternative Avery Hill retail strategy at some point. Should have just, um, <laughs> you know, on, on day two of, uh, of one of our earlier convention appearances, maybe... Um, Maybe swap, maybe swap the uh, the zines out for for some for some back issues. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I have got the first appearance of Gambit. Is that the one where he's got like the child storm on the, the cover? Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, pretty sure I've got that. I reckon I bought it, whether I could find it or not. But uh, that, if, if anywhere, oh, it's Dave, in, we all bought it, didn't we? I mean, <laughs> it's in Mrs. White's loft. If it's anywhere. <laughs> Now, as I say, uh, that's the one that's, that's the only one, and I mean, I sold so much stuff uh, that day, all sorts of random things, and probably sold more valuable comics than that at the time, but like, that's the one that stings that's just one, now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, and like, we've, we're, uh, I've basically put together as big a collection as I've ever had uh, over here, where I've got storage space again, essentially, um, and basically, you know filled in my x-men collection and then started to you know i've got things like days of future past you know the, the two issues that which i and like dark phoenix saga which i would never have had at that point because they would have been you know 30 40 quid comic yeah. which was well beyond my budget at that time but now I've, I've sort of like picked them up and gone oh yeah i'm happy to pay 40 quid for <laughs> x-men 141 because uh it's a beautiful comic um but as i say it's just with I guess with I was never that into Gambit, so I literally cannot bring myself to pay <laughs> a lot of money for his first appearance. So I was like, you know, I I get the charm of a a, a sort of a, a, what was he a Cajun a thief and a rogue, but like I don't need to spend you know eighty quid uh, getting it. No, no, that that would hurt. Yeah, as I say, I'd sort of dropped out for a while uh, and then ended up working at Waterstones Piccadilly. 
and at Waterstones Piccadilly, they had uh, a big, not actually, that would tell like they had a tiny comic section. <laughs> um, but I immediately sort of zoned in there and I was like, oh, this would be fun to do. And I still got, you know, some residual knowledge about titles and characters and creators that I could probably use to, to build up this thing. So I spent sort of six months uh, harassing the manager of the first floor to let me have the comic section. But Waterstones at the time, and I imagine it's still probably similar now, had this like weird idea that whoever the science fiction buyer was would automatically get the comic section because it was like genre. So it's like, yeah, so you, uh, you have science fiction, uh, fantasy, horror, and comics and graphic novels. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's one way of doing it. <laughs> um, and I sort, of, I sort of agitated to get, and I was like, uh, and basically it was two very narrow shelves uh, at the end of a section. And I was like, let me have, um, let me have one more bay, uh, just to expand. Because they and it was think they had things like, they would have like Sandman volumes two, three, seven, and nine. And I was like, you have to have the whole series, or it's just not worth having them at all. Um, and they'd have it all in alphabetical order, uh, by title, regardless of anything else. So I was like, I was like, you can't really have Sandman and then Superman because it doesn't make any sense to people and they were like why not and I was like they're just very different things like I was like let me have the section let me have a bit more so they gave me they eventually gave me uh another bay and I basically spread it all out and I, I had Marvel in one place and DC in another and I had the Vertigo stuff split off and the superhero stuff split off and I had you know a full run of Preacher a full run of Sandman a full run of uh, you know the authority and stuff just sort of you know the things that you kind of needed to have um, and I, I always remember like I did that and then like, three days after I did it someone came over to the till and had every volume of Sandman to buy in a stack and I sort of put it through with a massive smile on my face and as they walked off I said to the manager I was like that's why you have all of them because someone wants to buy all of them I was like you can't just rely on someone needing number three and you've got number three it's like just have all of them uh, so uh, basically they gave me the extra bay so I had like twice as much space but within a month I was selling like five times what the section was selling before that um, and the, the store manager basically came to find out what was going on <laughs> and I was like well basically uh, I asked for extra space and I've got the extra space and I've sort of rearranged it so it makes more sense and we've got more stuff and I've sort of broadened the range and whatnot and she was like um she was like right do you want another bay and I was like yeah please so she gave me another base and I had three bays um and then I think within a month of that it was making like 10 times what it was making before I took over uh, so they were like, well, this is, and then it was like, do you want another bay? And I was like, sure. I was like, you do realise at some point it's not going to keep exponentially <laughs> It's going to taper out and plateau at some point. And I'm like, yeah, sure. But for now, do you, let's, I was like, let's, let's test that theory. Let's, let's see where yeah. far you can push it. Come on, Walsh, you've been asking. Well, this is it. And, and by the end, uh, I was just sort of like, uh, just getting in like the, the maddest stuff. But also, as I say, um, getting in things uh, like Bone by Jeff Smith and putting it face out and selling like three copies a week, uh, which, you know, doesn't sound like a lot, but for, it's like a 30 quid book. So, you know, it was definitely, and things like, you know, uh, Watchmen face out, Killing Joke face out, just like, you know, obvious, obvious things uh, from a comics retail point of view. 
Um, and what's and, your take uh, on, on, on why that why that worked? I mean, apart from the obvious reasons, but were people not going to comic shops? They were coming to chains and saying, "Right, this is where I want to pick up my graphic novels." But it, well, it was. I think it was very particularly like if I'd have tried that in Waterstones in Croydon it wouldn't have worked in the same sort of right. way. It's Piccadilly. It was like the largest bookshop in Europe at the time. It was the flagship store. And that was the thing that sort of bothered me. It was all these things. It was this incredible space. And comics were just sort of like shoved in a corner and just not being presented properly. And I was like, oh, if we present this properly, we can absolutely make a ton of money off of these. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that was the thing. I think it was very much, you know, as, as much as I'd like to say it was purely down to my magical instinct, it was very much the, the location and the scale of the shop was a huge um, factor in the success. But the nice thing was, uh, eventually, when I went to leave Waterstones, my friend Jim spotted that Gosh Comics was hiring in uh, Soho. Actually, no, in uh, Great Russell Street at the time, because mm. they hadn't moved yet. Um, and he suggested that I put myself forward for it, so I did. Um, got an interview uh with josh and andrew and i think part of the the thing that got it was the fact that i'd mentioned working at waterstones piccadilly and andrew was like um yeah what happened there because i remember i used to go in there and it would be like two tiny little shelves and then suddenly it was like you know three or four uh shelves and i was like, oh that was me he's like, oh right i was like yeah yeah i just sort of said to them give me more space and i can do something with this and i think that sort of I don't know, I've never actually asked Andrew definitively, but I would imagine that was a huge factor in me getting the job, the fact that I had sort of taken the opportunity. I mean, it was things like, um, I remember sort of getting the extra space and then sort of going, oh, uh, I'd like to order some manga. And they had no manga on the system, not no manga on the system, they had stuff like Akira. But again, it was like Akira one and four and nothing else. Um, and I was like, let's get all of Akira and get like three copies of volume one face out and, you know. Um, but like at the time, Tokyo Pop were in business, but we didn't sell any of their books and it wasn't on the system. So I, I basically rang Tokyo Pop and got them to send me through a catalogue and I physically added all their titles to the computer system and ordered them. And uh, uh, I was told by someone at the shop that I shouldn't have done that. And I was like, why not? And they were like, uh, manga doesn't sell. And I was like, yeah, we don't sell it. I mean, <laughs> well, there's a link. Yeah, there's if we, a link we stop zero copies of a, of a series, we're going to sell zero copies of the series. Let's see what happens now we've got them in stock. And we did start to sell. And then within like 18 months, um, like the, 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 the sort of manga boom had hit properly. So uh, they were, they were adding uh, titles centrally, which is good because it saved me a lot of time. But I kind of resented the fact that they were sort of doing it uh, and then it sort of got to a point where they were doing things like they're doing like three for two on manga. So they were just sending through 50 copies of every every volume. And I had to stick at them and de-stick at them. And uh, I remember uh, the floor manager sort of going past as I was like furiously stickering these books. And he was like, be careful what you wish for. And I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly, sorry? No, I was going to say, Steve, you, you mentioned the interview you had with uh, for Gosh. I, I did speak to Andrew about it, and it wasn't, he, he said it wasn't Waterstones. It was the, um, it was the Comic Mart. It was the, uh, the table <laughs> you had at the Comic Mart. Why do you explain those single issues strewn across the table? <laughs> yeah, you heard about this guy that was just like, just like hawking. Yeah, so so that's that's what you've got you over the line. That's, that's what he told me anyway. 
but um, yeah, another time they, someone at head office ordered, um, and again, because we were like the flagship store, we became like a de facto warehouse for Waterstone. So if they were going to order loads of something, say they're ordering like 300 copies of a title for all the stores, they'd send 150 to us and then send 150 to the other 200 shops. So everyone else would get one each and we'd get 150, but we'd have to like find space on the heads. To be fair, we did have space, but it was just like frustrating and annoying knowing that you're going to have to return the majority of these in three months' time. Um, and one day uh, I came onto the floor and the manager was like, uh, oh, there's a delivery of some comics earlier. And I was like, all right, have a look. And it was uh, 100 copies of the manga Bible, which was essentially the Bible told as a manga. And I was like, oh, right. And he was like, yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? And I was like, it is a lot. And I was like, I don't think we're going to sell any of these. And he was like, why not? And I was like, people who are looking for manga do not want the Bible. And people mm -hmm. who are looking for the Bible do not want manga. It seems like a really weird decision to sort of go big on this title. I think we sold like two uh and then sent 90 no 148 back to the uh publisher like they were hidden under a table for months at a time uh while we had a couple on the shelf um so yeah you had sort of moments like that but as i say the nice thing was in terms of if i had like a a long long-term plan uh it got me to uh gosh which was like the next phase of my journey uh, and gosh was obviously Wonderful. Started off in uh, Great Russell Street with a spiral staircase and a tiny little shop where we had to like stash things in every possible sort of corner. Um, and then within a sort of month or two of being there, Josh and Andrew were like, oh, we're going to move to Soho uh, and get a, a new shop there. And I was like, what? And I was kind of furious initially because I always felt that uh camden and soho were probably london's two most overrated spots just in terms of like you know oh they're really cool places and i was like mm, are they though um but then we went to soho and uh it was wonderful like it was a much better location for the shop the space was much better it meant we could do uh events which obviously i sort of leaned into and started to host uh, various uh, sort of after hours discussion groups and uh, socials and meetups and stuff. Um, so yeah, what really was um, a tremendous place. And it really did, like I'd sort of got, kind of got back into comics with uh, Waterstones. I mean, when Andrew and Josh offered me the job uh, or in the interview, they were like, how well do you know monthly comics? And I was like, I said, I've, like to be honest I've been out of the loop for years I said but you know obviously you're only selling collections at Waterstones but I was like I'm you know I'm a quick study and I'm happy to sort of like put the work in to sort of get back up to speed in terms of the monthly comics which I think I did uh do uh across my my time there um and obviously that got me fully back into monthly comics collection every possible iteration uh of uh comics and had me fall in love with the form uh all over again uh eventually i leave uh gosh uh, to move back over to ireland 
and at that point I am approached by Avery Hall Publishing uh, to uh, become their uh, sales manager. Uh, I accept and that kind of brings us pretty much up to date, I think. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess the missing piece from that is kind of um, your involvement in the small press and in the UK indie comics scene and all that kind of thing, because I mean, there aren't many creators, especially in London, who don't know you personally in some capacity or other. Most of them probably had their comics bought into gosh by you. Um, at a time when there was probably just Gosh and All But All were two of the only real outlets other than selling them themselves at shows and things. So what? how did you first start looking at the uh, small press stuff and what? how did you see like the scene develop? Well, that was, that was a, a really interesting thing because obviously at no point in my you know, history at Waterstones, pre-Waterstones, buying comics as a kid, buying comics as a teenager. Like, the small press stuff was just never really on my radar at all. Um, and, you know, as you say, Gosh was a place that was particularly strong on small press, particularly keen on it, had a really good uh, section that was uh, well-established when I started working there. So... Uh, eventually uh, Andrew asked me and you know obviously while I was working there I did start to sort of look at stuff and buy stuff and read stuff and it got to a point where Andrew was like would you like to have a go at running the small press and I was like absolutely because I, I felt again I could bring something to it in terms of um, you know uh, just be, be keeping on top of the, the, the stock and and I was also curious. I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. This is going to force me to sort of go out and find stuff in a way that I probably wouldn't do if I wasn't running the section. So uh, I did. Uh, and, and I guess that sort of helped in terms of bringing me into proximity uh, of yourselves. Because, you know, while uh, I was running that section, uh, I... Uh, started doing a podcast with uh, my friend Jack called South London Hardcore and we spotted that there was uh, a small press fair happening in New Cross and again I don't know I think I, I probably would have gone out of curiosity anyway and like Jack was sort of keen as well but I think the fact that I was running the small press section I was like oh this would be an interesting place to go to and, and see stuff and I, I felt an almost professional obligation to go rather than just out of interest uh, and obviously while I was there um, I met Lando uh, who is a huge presence on the UK self-publishing scene uh, we met Henry Miller who I'd never met before uh, and is now uh, a sort of dear friend and again just a sort of sort of bring things not full circle but like Henry organized uh, the uh, Catford uh, small press fair uh, a couple of years back last year I forget which um, and he actually set up uh, the Steve Walsh 
tent <laughs> for some of the the sellers at that you know i'd left gosh at the time but in sort of recognition of my service to the small press scene uh he sort of named uh one of the marquees at his uh small press fair I mean, it was a huge uh and i was massively uh touched uh by it um you know henry and his son stan as well are both uh two uh, excellent uh, small press creators and really sort of interesting and, and fun uh, people to know and whose work to enjoy. Um, and, and that was a sort of a big step. I mean, obviously, again, you know, we, we went there and we, uh, that's where we first met yourselves, uh, Ricky and, and, and Dave. And we were very excited by the, year of Avery, the idea of Avery Hall Publishing because we were a resolutely South London podcast and the idea that you had named yourself after a place in South London uh, was sort of really exciting to us, really sort of interesting. And again, it didn't hurt that the stuff you were doing was also really interesting uh, and fun. So that's kind of where we got to know you. And then we invited you onto the podcast so we sort of interviewed you in gosh after hours one day and that sort of like you know deepened the the bond and connection we've sort of became pals after that and sort of uh, and then obviously while working at gosh I was regularly buying in uh, you know Avery Hill stuff and looking out for new titles and sort of just trying to make sure that we were well stocked with as, as wide a variety of Avery Hill stuff uh, as, as possible. But at the same time, you know, um, it was a massively exciting time for me, uh, just from a retail point of view where, you know, it really felt like, you know, it's been sort of said a few times by a few different people, but there was a point there where it felt like a sort of new golden age of comics where you had uh, sort of great new stuff coming out but then you also had great sort of reprints and sort of unprecedented levels of translations from other languages and, you know, so many different formats of collections and particularly nice, nicely put together editions. Um, and also, you know, the, the small press scene reflected that as well. It felt like it was a really sort of strong selection of stuff. And, and you know, you can't sort of put to one side the accessibility of, of printing at that time, like printing seemed to become just more cost effective, more accessible. Uh, and, you know, there you kind of have to uh, tip your hat to uh, Rich at Comics Printing UK, who at one point I think was was publishing like, you know, 70, 80% of the stuff in the, in the gosh small press section. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I say, it was a really, exciting time and I got to sort of like put together a couple of strips and stories for various anthologies so I got to sort of you know uh, contribute in that way as well so yeah as I say um, a massively uh, exciting time um, but you know um, by the same token uh, you know I don't think anyone exemplifies the the possibility of evolution from that small press self-publishing ethos into something much more 
scaled up than Avery Hill, where obviously when you started off, you're doing zines and you're self-publishing and you know stapling and, and whatnot. And then suddenly you're sort of like farming out the the print work to other people. And obviously now, uh, and like, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, Cat's books are a great example of this, these beautiful hardback editions where the print quality is tremendous and it does absolute justice to the, the gorgeous sort of images within the book as well. So, you know, uh, you know, it, I think it's fair to say that Avery Hill uh, does reflect a very important uh, phase of my my comics life. I just um, I, I wanted sorry. to say as well, just quickly, um, from the point of view of a sort of small press creator, that I think <clears throat> I think it was brilliant to have Steve at Gush in that role, um, taking care of the small press because he's such a friendly and approachable kind of guy. I think a lot of small press creators, when they start trying to sell their stuff to a shop, it's quite an intimidating <laughs> experience. <laughs> So it's really nice to have someone there who's really approachable, who you can go up to and, and just have a nice experience. I'm not saying I, I ever had a bad experience with anyone else at Gosh, but, um, <laughs> but um, Steve was As just if. particularly, particularly approachable um, and helped me get my first event set up when Amber and I published um, Tiny Pencil. I think Steve was the one that helped us get a, a sort of launch booked in. And that was my first time doing anything along those lines, like organizing an event. Um, so yeah, Steve was brilliant in that role, I think. Um, the, uh, yeah, the other thing I wanted to ask Steve, the new cross event you're talking about, was that at um, Goldsmiths University? It wasn't, it was at a pub. Okay. I don't remember what pub it was. It was the, um, the Amisham Arms. Amish, of course no. it was the Amisham Arms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think and I, that... might have, I might have been at that. I did oh really? I, did I, think, I think you were. Yeah, I did two in New Cross, one at Goldsmiths and one at Amersham Arms. Um, but yeah, I did we, we did that guys. Goldsmiths one as well. Okay. That, that was a couple of months afterwards, I think. Right. Yeah. But I didn't meet you guys properly until quite a bit after that, I think. Yeah, I don't remember seeing you at the... But I suppose the Amersham Arms one, that, you know, any sort of pub layout, it's always a weird... There's never a sort yeah. of natural <laughs> sort of row of tables, is there? It's always well, like... On, on, on that, on that, I remember... Because um, I, think, I think we'd done... A, I think it was a Sunday... And I think we've done a show the day before as well. Um, I might be dreaming this, Rick. Tell me, tell me if I've um, got uh, it wrong. But, but we met Henry at the one the day before. Right, right. Henry Miller. Yeah. Uh, or it might have been the week before or something like that. And he was like, "What? Uh, we were having a drink afterwards, and, and he was, he was uh, kind of saying, what, what you got coming up?' And we, we said, "Well, we're doing this one in New Cross uh, in the Amersham Arms." Uh, and he's like, "Oh, I live, I live near there." Um, I'll, I'll pop along and he, and he came along with with his stuff he hadn't arranged with Dimitri to to have a table or anything like that but that they just kind of gave him a bit of wood which he sat with on <laughs> which he sat with on his lap <laughs> on, a, on a chair and just laid his stuff out which was kind of a perfect encapsulation of that the, the other thing and I'm sure Henry will love me telling you this story it was a Sunday because I remember because he had a roast in the pub yeah. <laughs> and he had a little bit. He had a little bit of. A, he had a little bit of a snooze afterwards, whilst he was sitting there with, <laughs> with, with his with his with his zines on his on his bit of wood across his uh, across his lap. So it was. Um, I, I, I always and this is probably me romanticising it massively, but from our point of view, that was almost like um, uh, the the um, 
formation of the Sex Pistols in Manchester in '77. <laughs> because because <laughs> you had so many different people there, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, from from bands that then grew up out of that, um, and it felt because because you you know you meet met Lando, met yeah yeah yourselves um, and others, but <clears throat> that also begs the question: out of that group, who was Mick Hucknall? <laughs> <laughs> And I think I know the answer, so so be kind to me. (laughs) (laughs) The um the thing I remember about Henry that day was I love the fact that you said he sort of like turned up sort of not half prepared, but certainly not sort of like fully loaded because he definitely had a massive not massive but certainly had some sort of a John Craven yeah John Craven cutout uh and it was to promote his zine uh. John Cra- Craven's eyes or John Craven's eyes, which yeah, was essentially yeah. uh, some sort of spring watch, nature watch zine told from the point of view of uh, an increasingly manic John Craven. I don't know if I've made that bit up, but certainly. No, that sounds, that sounds right. <laughs> but, 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 but that was, he turned up on spec with all this stuff. Yeah. And, um, I love so, the idea of him turning up on spec with uh, a John Craven cut just in case. <laughs> yeah, just you know, if you've got, well, you could, yeah, just sit there, <laughs> crack on. And I, I just wanted to say as well, just talking about you know, cat's kind words about my uh, sort of role at, at, at Gosh in terms of being uh, accessible. Um, when I went to Thought Bubble the year before last, um, I was I was just browsing a table, and um, I forget the name of the guy now. I, I didn't remember him at the time, and he was like. Uh, he goes, uh, oh, uh, Steve, isn't it? I was like, it is, yeah. And I was thinking, oh, where do I know this guy from? And he was like, um, he goes, you won't remember me, but I, um, I um, bought some stuff in to sell at Gosh uh, a few years back. I was like, oh, right, uh, how, how's it going? And he had a few bits on the table and that. And uh, he, goes, uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, good. You know, uh, it's been, been fun sort of like making stuff. And that. He goes, um, he goes uh, and like what I would do at Gosh was obviously we would buy everything like firm sale um, and pay cash immediately at the time. And that's huge. That's a huge, I, 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 I don't, don't think when, when we were, you know, kind of selling it in that way, I don't think we ever came across that anywhere else. No, or, I think it ever, was ever have. sort of unique at the time. And, uh, uh, and like, you know, I, I'd sort of hand over a um, sort of receipt as well, just so people knew what they had and what they'd sold. Um, and uh, he said, uh, he goes, yeah, he goes, uh, yeah, I still think about that time I sold that stuff into you. He goes, it was the first time I ever sold into a shop. And I was like, oh, right. He goes, yeah, I've still got the receipt. I, he goes, I, uh, I sellotaped it above my workspace and I look at it every day. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, my God. I was like, oh, I was like, wow. He goes, yeah, it was huge for me. Thanks so much. And I was like, no problem. Like, it was like, and you don't think about, you know, I, you know, I, it sounds awful to say, but I have no recollection of that guy. Um, uh, and for me, obviously, it would have just been, you know, one of, you know, however many transactions I've done that day. But yeah. for him, it was this thing where he was like, yeah, I just realised, you know, I must be doing something right if a shop like Gosh is happy to buy my stuff in. Uh, and I was like, yeah, well, it looks like it. And obviously, you know, from then on, he's, he's tabling the thought bubble. So it's obviously, you know, moving in the right uh, direction for him. So, that, yeah, that was, a, that was a lovely moment. It really did sort of like... And I, obviously, I'd left Gosh at that point. Um, but it was like, oh, uh, yeah, it must have. It was good, good that I worked at Gosh because I did get to sort of 
you know, uh, be supportive of people and encourage people with uh, what they were doing. And I, I mean, you, you're not going to recall the hundreds of people. That no, exactly. You've yeah, with. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. But but it's the way you, it's, it's the way you've dealt with people, right? It's everyone has, was dealt with. I mean, in in a similar way, I remember when those first kind of photocopied. Um, scenes we were doing you know I'd walk those around to places and some of it we, you know you're not expected people to you know kind of welcome you with open arms and you know say well this is I mean cause the other thing was it, it weren't that great so you know you got you got to respect people's opinions but um it is an intimidating process and it is you know it's not it, it can be difficult and not many places were, were were receptive to it in those early days um so when you do find that support I mean, and, and, you know, this guy's remembered it, right? And that is, it, it, I don't think you can underestimate the impact of that, of, you know, that someone who's, who's putting out their work for the first time, potentially, um, being received in that way. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think you can ever underestimate the impact that that has on people. Mm. Actually, I think the first... I'd... I think the first time I was properly aware of meeting Steve, it was at an exhibition of a project that John Myers had done, uh, a comics project where he'd got different comic artists to illustrate the same bit of text or something. Script and score. Script and score, that was it. Yeah, that was it, yeah. And, oh, sorry, my Alexa's talking to me. <laughs> Script and score <laughs> by John Myers. Someone had, um, someone had told me about your podcast, I think. Um, and you asked, and I, I said I was a South London born, and you asked where, and I said Kingston, and you amazed me by being able to tell me, like, the first part of my childhood postcode. <laughs> 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 Obviously not the whole postcode, because that, <laughs> that would be terrifying, then it's yeah. not charming at all, then it's just... That's really a different scary. level entirely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's how I kind of realised that you knew lots about London, and, and I became quite a big fan <laughs> of the podcast as well after that, because it was just a really fun listen just sort of two friends having a, a good time, which is always fun to listen to. <laughs> yeah, Script and Score uh, was a remarkable project. It was basically, uh, yeah, this idea, John had this idea about how do people respond to uh, the same instructions, but in different ways. So he sort of like gave this very sort of skeleton outline for a plot, and then you could interpret it in terms of, um, however you want to but then it was also a thing where I think he laid out a certain sort of selection of panels and you had to sort of like draw in the story visually without resorting to uh working out the sort of the the outline of it um but yeah and I ended up collaborating on that with uh Kay from Liminal 11 which was another sort of sort of big connection for me uh yeah. at the time um and yeah, but like that, that was a great example of uh, the sort of projects. I never really did anything sort of big or major, but there's certainly there's a lot of things I was very sort of happy with and proud of being in, involved with. Yeah, I um, I think it's probably worth talking now about how you uh, ended up at Avery Hill as well. And um, I guess I, I, I remember you, I think I was talking to you about in in gosh because as, as i used to go in there just chat to you quite a lot anyway and um i think you mentioned then that 
you were leaving Gosh and going back to Ireland. And then I think Dave and I kind of talked about it and it just seemed weird not to have you involved in comics in in London <laughs> and the UK anymore. And we were just like, well, that let's see if he wants to work for Avery Hill. And we probably didn't have too clear an idea on what, what that role would be. And as ever, we just kind of, it was like when we brought Cat on, really, it's like we just want to work with people that we like and that we want to, um, we would enjoy working with, which is kind of how we choose our creators as well, I guess. And um, yeah, so I, I, I think partly we were wanting you to do podcasts and partly it's a sales thing. And um, yeah, like, yeah, I think it, it, I think it was just, job, yeah. Yeah, I think it was just, you know, having someone with such a deep network within, you know, whether it's whether it's uh, the industry, whether it's creators, all that kind of stuff, with all of your experience, you know, through through you know retail as well, um, and just someone who you know loves, loves comics so much to not to not be to, to not try and kind of bring that back into and, and try and help us in some way shape or form just it just seemed like a whilst it was sad in so many ways that you had to you know you, that you left gosh it was it just seemed like a perfect opportunity to bring someone in who can help us and, and, and like rick said we didn't necessarily know what that help would be initially um i think you know we, we were always very aware of of our limitations um as, as we as we you know kind of went through those first steps of trying to scale up Avery Hill and that we needed help which is and you know Cat Cat was that first massive step and then you know when as I say we was like well Steve can help us here and so what a wonderful opportunity that we hope you saw the same way unfortunately you know I think think you did and it kind of um it just seemed like a it was something we couldn't pass up from from my to, point to, of view, to at least find a way to try and try and find a way to make something work. And, and from my point of view, like when I decided to move back over to Ireland, and I keep saying we keep saying back and back over, like I lived in Ireland before I didn't. This is like re returning to my ancestral roots rather than <laughs> the place a I was born. A spiritual return. <laughs> yeah. um, when I decided to move uh, back to Ireland, it was very much with a sort of sadness and awareness that oh, that means I'm not going to work at Gosh anymore. And I was sort of not resigned. Yeah, I guess I was resigned to the fact that I was like, oh, I guess this is going to be me pulling away from comics again. Uh, and I would imagine not, it wouldn't have been as complete as it would have been during the teenage years where I just lost interest. And I would have still sort of kept up an interest and followed the news and followed creators and you know, um, I had a stand, still have a standing order at Gosh and whatnot. Um, but it would have been, you know, being uprooted and not being connected in the same sort of way to that London comic scene that I did feel uh, like hugely connected to by the end of my, my time at Gosh. Um, so for me, when uh, you made that offer, I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. That'd be wonderful. Just because you know, it would have been, a, you know, it's a thing then. And, you know, as I say, that going over to Thought Bubble, uh, that that time the year before last, I was there um, on your behalf and on behalf of Liminal 11 as well. But it was, it was wonderful to sort of, 
uh, sort of be at the show. And, and I, I did see a lot of creators who I knew from the small press uh, spot at uh, Gosh sort of saying, um, what are you up to now? And I was like, oh, I'm working with uh, Avery Hall Publishing. And they were like, oh, great. Because, you know, again, at this point, where the, the scale up uh, did go so well, you know, Avery Hill is very much a known quantity on the UK comic scene now. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity for me to uh, feel connected, but also feel connected in a substantial way with, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a player on the scene. <laughs> and is there anything, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, <clears throat> You, you could read us like a book for walking in Steve, but was, was there anything and, and potentially with the liminal 11 connection as well, was there, was there anything that you saw or picked up from, from starting to work with um, publishers that, that surprised you or, you know, kind of little, little light bulb from, from, you know, the retail days. I mean, apart from, you know the the, the obvious uh, the obvious foibles of of me and Ricky etc. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was just wondering if there's anything you you come like oh so that's why that or that's a missed opportunity or was there any was there any dots that got connected like that from 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 all of your experience by by kind of completing that circle almost? I guess not really. I mean, for me, it was really interesting because. I guess the thing I didn't sort of know was the particular process of publishing. So, you know, from retail, I knew about books arriving from distributors and publishers and wholesalers that we would put out on the shelves. Um, so getting to see uh, things like, and, you know, uh, particularly in the last sort of couple of months, uh, I sort of, I was, sort of a point man on a particular uh, sort of publishing thing where we did the, the dust jacket for the bastard edition stuff. Uh, mm. And uh, and obviously, you know, Cat uh, in particular did a lot of, of legwork on that in terms of putting together templates now. But that was a real sort of eye opener for me in terms of uh, the process of putting together you know, published materials. <laughs> so I think for me, yeah, it was that thing of uh, seeing the process of uh, books coming together, going off to be printed, um, and and just the, you know, the raw practicality of, uh, you know, yourself and Ricky having to heft, you know, hundreds of books up and downstairs, in and out of you know warehouses and whatnot you know it is that thing of like the raw physicality of publishing uh physical media well you know that, why, why do you think you know we, we've got the physique of an athlete like, like we have <laughs> i mean it's pure physical it's pure physical graph no I, I i i ricky does ricky's got the unfortunate proximity to our office which means he um <laughs> he's done far more of that than me over the years but um yeah, that that the first uh, the first edition, the first printing we did of um, on a Sunbeam. Right. Yeah. That was that was a day. Yeah. That yeah. was a day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've ever been the same after that either of us. <laughs> no. The end of the summer as well. The first one that that was very heavy. That was yeah. <laughs> there was a pallet turned up outside my house of I think two 
I don't know, 2,000 copies or something. And that, that, that was a dark day. That was a dark day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when, when I lived in, um, I lived uh, in East Dulwich, uh, up kind of a third floor flat and, and no, uh, <clears throat> no lift or anything. And we used to get, um, before, before we got our office, we used to get a lot of our stuff delivered to our houses. So <clears throat> we had nowhere else to put it. Um, you know, we didn't, we, we weren't working with distributors at the time and you'd see, uh, I kind of knew what was coming from Rich. You know, you had an idea of what was going to turn up, but you saw you saw the lorry pull up and you saw the guy get the pallet off the back of the truck and it was like this is this is I knew I knew it was coming, but just just seeing it <laughs> and knowing what was going to about to happen and what would happen over the next like for a couple of hours. And then it would start <laughs> raining and all that kind of stuff. So um yeah, the, the sheer glamour of it. I, I think one thing that I remember you mentioning, Stephen, like the early days when you were first kind of emailing out all the um, different comic shops and stuff, uh, I, I think it kind of dawned on you quite early on that most comic shops aren't like gosh <laughs> in, terms, <laughs> in terms of how they welcoming they are to, um, to smaller publishers. Yeah, just I found it bemusing. I was like, I've emailed these shops and... Um... I guess like five percent of them have re replied, <laughs> and uh, you, and he was like, uh, "Yeah, that's probably about you know what we normally." That's a good result. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "I was like, why would they not reply?" And he was like, "You know, they're busy and stuff." And I was like, "Yeah, but like," I, and I was like, "You can't." Uh, there was wasn't a thing at Gosh where you'd sort of go, "I guess I'm just not going to reply to that email." Like I, even if I was like saying no to someone, I'd take the time to reply just because uh that's what you do it, it did completely elude me and uh bemuse me but it was something i sort of you know became hardened to uh, <laughs> over the years i mean it's, it, as, as i think rick probably said uh, you know everyone's <clears throat> uh especially you know the independent comic shops you're running your own business so you know i'm sure um people's attention and, and time gets pulled in and in any number of directions but um which, which means you can't always answer that email and but but i think i think it just underlines steve you know how and and you're what you were telling us about bought stones as well and the way that you grew that section is is a lot of it is individuals it's not yeah. systems yeah. it's not processes it's not you know the what sits behind the uh, the distribution systems or so, and it's individuals taking an interest and being committed and being passionate about things. And you know, I think that's that that's a huge amount of you know what 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 you brought to Waterstones, what you brought to Gosh, and then then what you brought to to us is, and and I think that probably what we didn't realise at the time when. We were like, yeah, let's get Steve in. Was was that's what that's what you, that that's that's what we were looking for. It's someone with that that passion to really engage, help people um, on an individual basis around you know individual projects, but also the wider the wider the wider medium. One of the things I sort of realised moving forward with the the comic shop project essentially was uh, I'd find that if you sort of had a look at the shop's website and there was a photograph of like a wall of Funko Pops, 
there's a very small chance of them responding to uh, <laughs> anything from independent publishers. So uh, that was a, a useful sort of guide uh, moving forwards. Yeah, we did. Well, we did try and get. Um, we did try and get a line of Funko Pops for um, <laughs> follow me in. Um, <laughs> But for some reason they didn't buy it but yeah <laughs> I th I th I th we thought your book cat was, was the ideal opportunity to get into that merch but, but yeah. it's never, quite, them. never quite happened for them. <laughs> yeah exactly just to uh i guess round things off uh and to sort of end on a positive point like one of one of the true highlights of my time working with avery hill was in particular sort of seeing cats projects and books moving from sort of and you know it's worth bearing this in mind as well like your self-published stuff cat is still amongst the best produced yeah. uh, most beautiful self-published stuff i've ever seen but like seeing that get translated into you know hardcover books and uh, the, the the print quality and the paper quality that uh, you know uh, Avery Hill could could uh, bring to bear on your behalf um, was a real uh, joy, and it really felt like uh, you know your work was being done uh, justice. As I say, not that there was anything wrong with you self-publishing, but uh, it was really nice to sort of see uh, your books being given uh, the respect that they deserve. Oh, thanks, Steve. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I think that's the the brilliance of Avery Hill's role, really, in in helping kind of indie creators and self publishers get maybe a little step up. Um, well, really, a big step up. <laughs> um, and it's yeah, it's definitely an amazing thing about Ricky and Dave's sort of passion for the the whole thing. Um, that that's really helpful to a lot of creators to kind of start to get their work in front of more people and. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate everything Avery Hill's done for me as well. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me today, team. Um, I'm sure I'll see all of you at some point over the next um, few months when yeah, I definitely. inevitably pop over to London to say hello to people. Um, thanks again for the opportunity. It's been a, a wild and wonderful ride. Um, well, obviously, thanks to you, Steve. Um, like this podcast wouldn't exist without you. There's so many great episodes of it with some really amazing interviews. And um, what well, we we massively appreciate everything you've done for Avery Hill. And uh, you've like obviously we we find Avery Hill a lot of work for ourselves, especially with day jobs, but. Being able to work with you and Kat and people, it, it kind of improves things for us massively. So uh, thanks for all your efforts and for everything you've achieved with us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, there's there's a short list of people that we've worked with <clears throat> um, over the years um, that have enabled us to get to this this point. Um, it's not a long list, and I think most of those people know who they are, but you're definitely one of them, Steve, uh, from, you know, initially embracing us into the small press world opening you know those networks up to us in your own inimitable style and then you know helping us out as part of the business over the last last few years so um yeah thank you mate cheers <laughs>